The preaching is from Psalm 73, and particularly verses 4 to 12. We've read the whole of this psalm just moments before. You can pick uh, a few things from it. Notice particularly verse 4 and 5, and then verse 12 to fix our attention. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Believers are saved by grace alone. And the grace of God gives faith. So we read of that in Ephesians 2. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. And so we acknowledge the Bible's teaching that faith is that by which one embraces the whole Word of God, but particularly those truths related to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this faith, of course, is that which receives Christ and receives the Lord's blessings. And by that faith, receiving Christ, one is securely and everlastingly saved. There are many blessings and benefits that come with that and through that. And the more we grow in our fellowship with Christ and our enjoyment of Christ, our knowledge of Christ increases, our knowledge of God's love to us in Christ increases, And all of the benefits, some of which we sang earlier from Psalm 103, are experienced, acknowledged, and enjoyed. There is, of course, the strengthening of our soul thereby. And we feel as if it were our soul is standing upon a firm rock. And though these things are true, there are yet trials that come even to the most sure-footed believer. There are difficulties that, unbeknownst to the believer, expose weaknesses that had been present and for the moment overlooked, leap to the forefront and cause the believer no little trouble. It seems that's what's taken place with the psalmist as Asaph recounts this trial. We noted last time, Verse 2, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. And so he's acknowledging that there was a time when he was standing, but this circumstance which he opens to us was that which caused him almost to fall. We are grateful that not only does he recount the circumstances that led to that, but also as we hope to in the future consider those gracious ways in which the Lord secured His faith and strengthened it again and brought Him to a place even better than when He first began. So among the various trials that believers face, one that has often been a source of frustration and difficulty to the believers before us here. You see it introduced, of course, in verse 3 when he says, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes forward from verse 4 onward describing particulars related to the foolish and the wicked. And then he closes off that section in verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly 
who prosper in the world, they increase in riches. And so the faithful witnessing those wicked ones who prosper encounter a cause of trial to their faith. And you'll notice how these wicked ones are described. Verse 3 we saw as foolish and likewise as wicked. Well, that word wicked is translated a bit differently. It's found again in verse 12. These are the ungodly. Wicked or ungodly meaning hostile to God. They are opposed to God. And so it's not just that they're sort of hands-off religion. They're actually purposefully, consciously, deliberately opposed to God. And so it's one thing, of course, to see one who shrugs his shoulders and goes about and is neither overtly wicked in outward display. We're not saying anything regarding this true state of his soul nor is he overtly religious, and we see them go on, and that troubles us somewhat. But there's another thing when we see the openly profane, the openly wicked, the openly rebellious, those who raise, as it were, their fist against God, and as it were, challenge the Lord to vindicate His name. When that happens... And all of us, as it were, would shrink back, awaiting the earth to open her mouth and swallow them up, or the sky to darken and lightning strike them from the heavens. And nothing happens. Instead of nothing happening, in fact, it seems that all falls out to them for good. The believer then is faced with a tangible difficulty. And this was the circumstance of Asaph's struggle, which we hope to consider. And as we do, we'll look at two things. Firstly, the trial this is to faith. And likewise, secondly, the wrestling of faith against it. So the trial, such prosperity of the wicked is to faith, and the wrestling of the believer against it. Now, of course, the psalm stands as a unit, as a whole, and so we have the whole psalm that testifies of both the struggle as well as the Lord's remedy, and we can look at that together in time. We wish to focus upon the prosperity of the wicked, firstly, as it presents a trial to the believer. And there are two things that we can note about this trial. The trial presents itself, firstly, by means of the temporal life of the wicked. And so when we say that, we mean the life in this world that such wicked ones enjoy. And so notice, for instance, with reference to the temporal life of the wicked, how this is described in a variety of ways. Verse 4, we read, there's no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. And so it talks of their life being one of strength and vitality and Instead of weaknesses and sores and trial and obstacle after obstacle, everything seems to bow to them. They're strong. Their life is secure. You see as well in verse 5 that's characterized as one of ease. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. We should perhaps say as an aside, this is not meaning that all of the wicked have this kind of life because all of us, surely Asaph included, would have been able to single out and to see groups of wicked ones whose lives were struck with great uh, poverty 
difficulty, agony. But it stands still that there are a great class of wicked ones who prosper in this world. And this is what Asaph sees. He says their life is easy. It's not that they don't have their hiccups along the way, but it's like they go from strength to strength. And you'll notice further, this temporal life is described as one of abundance in verse 7. It says, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. Brethren, even in our culture where the poorest of our land stand as rich among other countries, even we look upon certain wicked ones who sign multi-million dollar contracts and have that going on for the rest of their life. And we see their lifestyle and their drunkenness and their uh, sensuality and all these things. And report after report goes from this new venture and that new venture and this new success and that new success. And their life is not only one of strength and ease, but abundance upon abundance heaped upon them. And further, this life is noted as one of prosperity. Verse 7 or verse 12 says, These are the ungodly who prosper in the world. Literally, it's that they're secure forever. Their life is given such stability that they're prospering and abounding forever. So long as you can measure out their life, they're going from one success to another. And perhaps there's even implicit here a testimony not only of the wicked individual, but the wicked as a class. That as we can see it, it's as if there's always the wicked prospering. There's always a group that are continuing on. It's this way in our generation. It was that way in the previous generation. It's that way in this millennium. It's that way in previous millennia. The point is, the wicked have a strong testimony of success. Their profanity and their corruption abounds, but their life abounds. Now, why is this a trial to the believer? Well, fundamentally, it's because the believer, though given faith, which we can consider something like uh, the spiritual ability to perceive the spiritual kingdom and embrace it, though that's true of the believer, the believer nonetheless has physical senses still and so sees these things surrounding him. The believer witnesses the prosperity of the wicked. We live in this world and we see the things of this world. When we close our eyes and drift off to sleep, the first thing that happens when we open our eyes is we see our physical surroundings. If we turn on the radio or we catch up on the news, we're seeing what has transpired. We go out and we talk with people and they tell us of these things. Our life is filled with witness after witness after witness of this temporal life. So think of it for a moment in your own experience. If you were to measure out and quantify the temporal things considered and discussed today versus the spiritual things considered, how frequently, how often, without doubt, the measure would be far larger about the things that you've seen temporally. So you've thought about the weather, you've talked about tomorrow, you've talked about the rich, perhaps you heard news and you were talking about that, you're asking what's for dinner, all of these things, and we're not saying anything is wrong about that. We are temporal creatures that must consider the things of this life. We have a slight 
pain in our side, we think about that. We research, we talk, we ask questions. We ask, how's someone doing? What'd you do today? Our whole life is filled with quantifiably uh, uh, multitudinous instances of temporal concerns. Now, this can be a problem for the believer who is to have his mind set above upon things where Christ is seated. And yet, even when that's the case, the believer has to be living in this world, though not of the world, and so aware of circumstances as simple as turning the light on. Uh-oh, the light's turned off. Now what do I have to do? Oh, the, the power's failed. What do I do? My stomach's grumbling. What do I do? We're fixed upon temporal things because God has given us a body. But here's where it becomes a trial to the believer. Because of the nature of the created order, because of our own fixation oftentimes sinfully upon the temporal realm, we make that out to be as the only life, the only realm. And when we start to think in that way, it's understandable why we look at the wicked prospering in this life and think, now this is a big burden. When the temporal life of the wicked becomes equated with life, now we have the grounds of the trial. In other words, when the temporary life of the wicked, howsoever long, whether an individual's lifespan of 80, 90, 100 years, or as you were to measure it from the fall of Adam to today until Christ's return, it's still a measurable, quantifiable duration. If that becomes the measurement of life absolutely, now we have the ground as to why this troubles our souls. Because what happens is, this life takes our eyes off of the life to come. And you'll see that, of course, when Asaph is brought to be restored, he's brought to see, verse 19, how they are brought into desolation as in a moment. We're simply trying to understand why this temporal life of the wicked is such a difficulty. Related to that, many times the temporal life of the godly is difficult. And so it's not that there aren't men like Solomon who prosper even in outward things. Job was tremendously rich, and though he went through a very dark valley for an extended time, yet the outcome of his life in this world was one in a better place than it first was before the trial. And so there are Christians, of course, who have temporal lives that abound. And yet, the grand majority have temporal trials and troubles. And if not temporal in the bodily fashion, yet temporal in relationships, spiritual difficulties, and grievances occur that trouble their souls. And so the reason this is a trial is because there's often a contrast between the temporal abundance of the wicked and the temporal troubles of the godly. So we'll get to this later, but you'll notice in verse 13 that we read, Verily, truly, I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency, for all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. You see the contrast. Look at the wicked. Their lives in this world abound. 
Look at the godly, the believer. My life is filled with trouble. Fundamentally, the question is asked, is it worth it if this is the measurement given to the godly? But it's not just the temporal life of the wicked that stands as the trial to faith. The trial to faith by the prosperity of the wicked is all the more enhanced when you consider the spiritual life of the wicked. So it's one thing to see someone abounding in wealth, abounding in health, abounding in strength. The relationships are strong. They have all that one could want. And it goes from prosperity to prosperity. But when it is that the one doing that is one who is careless in divine things, blasphemous against God, and opposed to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it becomes more acute in its trial. And that's what we see here. So notice in verse 6, these are called uh, as those who have pride that compasseth them about as a chain. Now this word chain has the notion of a, uh, a decoration, like a necklace we would say, one that would be given to um, one in high standing. And so here is one who is uh, decorated publicly with pride. Now think for a moment how that is represented in our day. And so you can't go for two minutes listening to the radio without this coming out. Pride being asserted. You can't watch athletics today without pride being asserted. A team sport brings out individual pride. People thumping their chests and getting their own and all sorts of things. Pride is asserted throughout our culture again and again. Politically, we see this. Not just among candidates, but among the talking heads who are always about put-downs to others and building up of themselves. Argumentation today in social media, if we can call it argumentation, certainly not rational, is much about pride. The culture we live in can be summarized with this single syllable, proud. That's what our culture is. It's arrogant. And it is found particularly among those who raise their fist against the Lord. And this is what is troubling Asaph. I look at the wicked, and they are filled with pride. Now think of this. Our culture struggles to understand this. But when you read in the book of Proverbs, six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. What is one of the seven? A proud look. Think of that for a moment. So much as a proud look is in the sight of God abominable. He despises it. It is repulsive to Him. It is disgusting to Him. He abominates so much as a proud look. But here, they're flaunting their pride. It's compassing. It's surrounding them as a necklace. You think of this. A woman is going out to a special engagement and she goes to either heirloom jewelry or something perhaps a husband or a friend has given her and she puts on a necklace for the special occasion. And even if it be tasteful, it's yet meant to be an appearance that is bringing attention and is somehow being pleased or or pleasing those who look upon it. Well, here the wicked are wearing pride like the necklace. What am I going to wear to impress the others around me? My pride. So this which the Lord abominates 
is the very decoration that the wicked put on. Moreover, it says violence covereth them as a garment. They forcefully put their will upon others. This can mean, of course, physical and the very murderous plots and uh, the various other abusive ways that physical things are forced upon others. It can also mean simply the enforcement of one's own will against other. I will have my way. In the Lord's providence, we just looked at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, and you think of one grand display of grace and love is humility. The very notion of me saying, not my will, but God's yes, but even in context, not my will, but my brother's will. Let no man look upon his own, but let each esteem other better than themselves. Let each concern themselves with others' things. That's the focus of grace. That's the mind of Christ. And here's the direct opposite where they stand with violence, forcing their wills, saying, my way is going to be done. Christ teaches us to seek in our prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. But here the wicked spiritually stand opposed to God. They stand in the same capacity of Satan, who is the adversary against not only the believer, but against God, despising God. And so they stand blasphemously against Him. And indeed, we see this in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, they are corrupt. The idea being they deride. And you'll see it more fully in its explanation they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. And it's not just man-oriented. It is, of course, heaven-oriented. And so it says, they set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Notice verse 11. They say, not just they think. In an earlier psalm, we read of the fool who hath said in his heart, there's no God. Well, here they're saying publicly, how doth God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? When you see the temporal abundance given to this kind of person, it forces the question upon us, especially in the one true religion that calls us to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, to follow Christ, to walk in lowliness, to walk magnifying Christ and serving others. And we see the ease and the prosperity of this kind of person. And we begin to wonder, again, because we're measuring things by the temporal instead of the eternal, is it worth it to follow the Lord? Brethren, whatever it was in Asaph's day, surely we see these things in ours. Surely we hear it. Brethren, there used to be, there still are of course, but there used to be more stringent laws against profanity. And there still are certain words that will incur fines on public radio and public television and other public outlets. Set aside the crass and set forth the actually profane. And what's striking is this. The actually profane, God's name, hell, 
damnation. These things are permissible to be spoken publicly. The crass are forbidden. The openly profane is openly permitted, protected, and governed in such a positive way that people can use those things in the forum of which even children may be listening. This is our culture described. This is our life right now. And whereas we may think, well, I don't struggle with this, I imagine that Asaph would have had that for a moment too. But what happens is, as we'll see, the life of self-denial is brought so low on occasion that the eye turns to look to the eye of the selfish, the proud, the arrogant, and their prosperity, their ease, their celebrations, their relationships. And the question comes, why am I doing this? Why am I following such strict and stringent rules? Why am I pursuing something that is so far off in the distance? Why not just live and let live? Why not just ease up? Why not just compromise a bit? Why not just let my speech slip? Why not just let my life go? Why not just let it happen to some extent? Because evidently, it's not that important. Because surely if it were, if anyone would call forth God's temporal judgment, it is this ungodly, wicked, and foolish one who lifts his lips against God and who stands opposed to his people. Verse 10. The trial, of course, is because here are foolish, godless ones who are explicitly said to be hated by God. Notice, for instance, Psalm 5. You see the same word being used. Psalm 5, and there at verse 5, it says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Verse 6, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Verses 5 and 6. That's the description of what Asaph is witnessing. And yet instead of being destroyed, instead of being judged, it seems they're being advanced. It seems their life is going forward and advancing with strength after strength. Here are the ungodly whom the Lord leads the Psalter with this testimony against them that they shall perish. Psalm 1. Verses 4, 5, and 6. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. For the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This is the trial that is presented by the prosperity of the wicked to the believer. But notice then, the wrestling of the believer. It's less in our verses here, though it's implicit even here, because you remember that functionally what's happening in verses 3 through 12, 4 through 12, is a remembrance of what his struggle was, which tells us that he's come through the struggle. And of course, the psalm makes that explicit from 
verse uh, 13 onward, especially verse 17, when it speaks to the transition of drawing near to God and Asaph being given clarity once more, humbling himself, confessing his foolishness, and so on. But notice that part of the struggle of the wrestling of the believer is firstly faith acknowledging that there is a struggle. There is a difficulty. There is, of course, wisdom, should the Lord give us the ability, simply to dismiss the whole. But to do that properly, it must be more than superficial. And fearfully, most of the bravado of Christians today is a superficial sort. And so it simplifies things. It takes even scriptural teaching and things heard, and it never plunges the depth of what is being held forth. And so it sort of superficially dismisses the struggle, the temptation, the trial. And though the form of dismissing it is right, so soon as the superficial becomes real in their life, they become cowards, bowing before the difficulty, feeling the weight of the trial, and saying, I didn't realize there was so much strength of opposition against me in this little thing. What's a biblical example? Well, we're about to come to it, of course, in our study through Luke. Peter says, Though all men shall forsake thee, yet surely not I. What happens? Well, he stands, of course, with his band of men. And he wields a sword against one of the servants. So much for his failure. But then, just hours later, he denies Christ because of a girl who asks him, are you one of his disciples? Here's the point. Peter stood confident and saying, whatever comes, I've heard you say you're going to die. Well, I'm ready to go with you. I'm not leaving you. There's confidence, right? In some form, that's appropriate. Whatever happens, I'm for you. But he had misunderstood the depth of what was coming. And Christ had tried to rouse him and say, Peter, watch and pray. Peter, of course, had already begun his compromise. Not consciously. Subconsciously, what was being exposed was a superficial understanding of the weight of temptation. And when we have a superficial understanding of the weight of temptation, when the temptation comes in force to us, apart from God's grace, it would engulf us, swallow us up, and we would be undone. So a better way is to acknowledge the struggle, to acknowledge the weight of the temptation, to acknowledge that there is a difficulty here. So when Peter writes to the saints scattered abroad, he doesn't say, it's not a trial that's coming. He says, it is a fiery trial. It is a trial that's difficult. And yet he says, it is light and momentary. And you can see how he's putting two things together that faith has to put together. There is a fiery aspect to the trial. Now, almost everyone in this room has doubtlessly had the experience of touching something that is so hot, it burns. And so you touch it accidentally, and you rip your hand back, and you immediately think for a remedy, how can I handle this? If it blisters, it's worse, and so on. 
Well, here's the point. Trials, temptations, when they come in force, have that nature spiritually to us. The only reason that any believer overcomes trials is because of the grace of God. And so faith acknowledges the trial. This is what Asaph's doing. And we need to learn to do the same. Father, I'm seeing these things happen. I'm seeing the trial come, whatever it might be. Here it's the prosperity of the wicked. In another it might be the opposite or the inverse of that, the difficulties of the believer. Here I see relationships flourish for those who aren't so careful to walk with the Lord. Here I see ease abound to those who aren't so zealous for the Lord. Here I see all of those things going, but for me, I'm finding trial after trial. In fact, the more that I try to follow the Lord, the more I try to repent, the more I seek not only those outward things, but the more I seek to cultivate a relish for the love of Christ, it's as if my whole world is blown up. Is it worth it? Well, faith acknowledges it and says this is a difficulty. This is a struggle. This is a trial. In other words, faith comes and confesses it. Father, I'm struggling with these things. I'm not strong enough to deal with the struggle of my own. You remember in Mark chapter 9, the one comes to Christ and Christ calls him to believe and he says, I do believe. Help thou mine unbelief. That's what faith must do. It's wrestling with it. It's not pretending that it's easy. It's not something like a hallmark religion that just rubber stamps all sorts of catchphrases, even scriptures, and says this is what the Bible says and so everything's happy. When it is that there is a wrestling coming, the wrestler says this is difficult. And far from being unpious or in some way irreligious, it is precisely what is needed. Think of how the Lord teaches us to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it comes down to the end and it says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What is being taught there? Well, if you know the catechism, you have a helpful hand in that. And it reminds us that one reason we're asking is because all of these things we seek come only from God. Implicit in that is an acknowledgement that none of these things we seek can be produced by ourselves. Thine is the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thine is the power. Do all of these things. Thine is the glory that Your name would be praised. The way that we as believers are to pray is an acknowledging of our own inability. And with that, of course, our own in ourselves inability to resist temptation. This does nothing to fight against the fact that we are called to labor diligently against temptation. It is simply to acknowledge that the way that we labor against temptation is by confessing our weakness, glorying in our weakness. Remember when Paul says that he learned not to deny his weakness, but even to boast of it. Therefore shall I boast of mine infirmity. Right? Brethren, this is what faith does. It feels the weakness. It feels the strength of temptation, the weakness of self. And it says, Lord, here it is. I'm pointing it out. I am weak. You are strong. So faith acknowledges the struggle. 
But secondly, faith remembers the promises. And we'll get to this more fully in verse 17. But you can see the implicit way it's stated in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. This is what faith wrestles with. It acknowledges the difficulty that I'm seeing. Here's what I'm witnessing. And if I were to close off the system of the universe measured by simply what is seen in this life, I would have such a witness against the call of Your Word that I don't know what I should do. This is why Paul says, listen, if the dead rise not, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the measurement. But faith goes further. It not only sees what the world sees and acknowledges what the world is doing, but it also draws near to God and remembers His promise and whose promise it is, namely God's, the sanctuary of God. And this leads, of course, to a crying out to God. Thus, verse 17, when it testifies of understanding their end, it goes forth to realize all of these things And then, in resting upon God, there is a resolve to follow after Him. Notice how this appears in other psalms. Psalm 13, verse 1. You'll see the wrestling, the faith remembering God's promise, the faith crying out to God. Verse 1 of Psalm 13, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? That's wrestling. That's not happy, clappy religion. That's in the depths acknowledging I am struggling. I am facing difficulty. How long will it be? Verse 2, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? You'll notice, here's the fruit of faith wrestling. Acknowledging the difficulty. Drawing near out to God. Notice verse 5. I have trusted in Thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in Thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because He hath dealt bountifully with me. Look at Psalm 6. And you'll see wrestling again. Verse 3. My soul is also vexed, sore vexed, but Lord, how long? Return, O Lord. Deliver my soul. Oh, save me for Thy mercy's sake. You see the wrestling. You see the promises remembered. You see the crying out to God. And you can see this in psalm after psalm and experience after experience. There isn't this pious, well, we're not going to acknowledge the difficulty. There's an owning of the difficulty. Bringing it to God and saying, here's my struggle. But it's ever a struggle eyeing God as our God who has made promises to us and who is faithful. It is the outworking of the I do believe, help mine unbelief. I believe Your Word, but I see these things and I'm struggling. So I'm coming to You and saying, deliver me. Give me Your help. Answer these promises in accordance to Your Word. Brethren, when you see this for a moment, what you'll see is the way the Lord orders the prosperity of the wicked for the prosperity of the believer. This is how He does it. He doesn't do it by turning a switch on and now the the believer is rich. He does it by causing the believer to be brought low. That he would then look again more earnestly to God. 
And when he looks to God, it's then that his soul is exalted. That's what the Lord is doing. Think of this for a moment. Satan is doing all that he can to shut up the believer, to cast away the believer, to reject the believer, and so on. But the Lord actually uses that to bring the believer to cry out to God, which is an exhalation of faith. Children are born, and there's no sound being made. What happens? The nurses do all of their scurrying, and they're doing what they can to get the infant to cry. The gasping of crying is actually the sound to the mother and the nurse and the doctor and the father that this is a good thing. The child lives. That's what God does through these trials. He makes us to cry out to Him. And brethren, that is a sign of life. That is a sign of faith. The prosperity of the wicked, which exposes certain weaknesses in us, which exposes certain presumptions in us, by God's grace is ordered to lead us to exercise faith. That's what it is. Well, There's much more to say and Surely even of these verses, much more could be said. But we close by noting that we ought to learn the working of this temptation in particular. How does this temptation work? As we've noted, it works by limiting our perspective to this world. Now it may be a lifetime, it may be our lifetime, it may be the lifetime of a wicked person. It may be the whole of this world as it presently is. And highlights those who are wicked and prosper. But what it does also to understand how this temptation works is it also removes from our sight and our conception the unseen reward to come. And we mean by reward not just the good reward that will be given to the believer, but that which will be given to the prospering wicked one. And so if we can learn how this temptation works, which, by the way, is not all that different from any other temptation, limiting our attention to this life, keeping us from considering the life to come, will have a better ability by God's grace to oppose it. So how do we oppose it as we close? Well, we oppose it by studying God's promises. We oppose it by measuring the whole of this world in the very simple temporal measurement that is infinitely beneath the everlasting measurement of the world to come. That's what we'll see with Asaph. If we're going to overcome the temptation, we surely need God's grace. But here's what God's grace does when it works. It opens to our eyes the promises of God. It opens to our eyes the world to come. And so we can start to examine ourselves and evaluate, how am I thinking when I'm really down when I'm struggling and tempted and so on, when I'm thinking, is it worth it? Ask yourself this simple question. Am I minding more the present or am I minding more the time to come? And most of the time, what will have to be acknowledged is when we're struggling and we're weighing in our minds and our souls, is it worth it? We're actually looking more at the present. Now, the present's real. The present's not an illusion. The present is a real experience. But so is the future. So is eternity. And so it's not a question of reality versus dream. 
It's a question of what is the full scope of reality? And that's what we have to consider. If we're going to see these things through by God's grace, we have to overcome what Asaph was stumbling over, which was this, the temporal advance of the godless. And the only way that's overcome is by looking at the future destruction of the godless and the future open, everlasting blessing of the believer. And so we study the promises. We study the prophecies. Christ has prophesied, I will come again. Paul has testified of the last day. Peter has testified of the same. And we start to form a fuller picture of history. Not just the past, but history as it will be. Because just as you each day are experiencing what once was future, so soon enough, brethren, what a thought, soon enough, you will be experiencing the glory of heaven as the present. And when that becomes a reality in your consciousness, then it is that these temporal trials, the prosperity of the wicked, are able to be overcome. And finally, by way of application as well, is to study Christ, His cross, and His resurrection. Because as you do so, believer, think of this for a moment. You actually study yourself. Because you are united to Christ. He is your head. As He was brought low, so is He now exalted. And you think of all that He's gone through. His family ridiculing Him. Mocking Him. His disciples fleeing from Him. His body beaten and bruised. The very officers He appointed as officers of the Old Covenant Church, uh, being those who would be His antagonists and accusers. All of these things. And yet, having said it is finished, bowing His head, giving up the ghost, being buried, remaining under the power of death for three days, we praise the Lord that He is risen. And brethren, if He is risen from all of the agony and all of the trial and difficulty He faced, all of the prosperity of the wicked that was given against Him. So in Him and by Him, you too shall rise. So whatever the reality of the prosperity of the wicked is, we ought always to remember not only will it be overcome, but in Christ it already has been overcome. Would you stand with me?